Good to be with you. Good to be in God's presence. We are back in our series in John's Gospel, Jesus at the Centre. We've been in it for quite a while now and uh, I've been getting so much out of it so far. I really hope you have as well. We've got a, a few more weeks on it and uh, I, I just love the passage we've got to this morning. Um, one thing I love about John's Gospel is although John is very clear about setting the scene, the bigger picture of who Jesus Christ really is, I love the way he, he zooms in on specific individual encounters with people. There's a real intimacy in John's writing. I mean, John knew Jesus probably better than most. He was the disciple Jesus loved. That's his description. And it's just a beautiful way he writes about these individual encounters that Jesus has with people. I mean, we've got the, uh, his encounter from all walks of life as well. We've got the encounter with Nicodemus, this respected religious leader, albeit a very confused religious leader. So we've got a respectable, respectable guy. And then we've got the Samaritan woman at the well, opposite end of the spectrum and the wonderful grace and love in which Jesus communicates with her. Same too with the woman caught in adultery. The guy who was born blind, a beggar. Wonderful, life-changing encounters. Last week we heard about the death of Lazarus and how Jesus immediately sympathized and empathized with that grieving family. Wonderful personal encounters that had life-changing consequences. And this morning we, we come to a particular beautiful personal encounter as Mary, Lazarus's sister, anoints Jesus' feet with some very costly perfume. If you've got your Bibles, do turn to John chapter 12. If you haven't got a Bible, it will come up on the projector. I'm just going to read the first 11 uh, verses. If you can see that, it's a bit small print. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honour. Martha served, true to type, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this, though, because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and had come not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Lazarus had become a bit of a celebrity. 
So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. It's a beautiful encounter, one that uh, Matthew and Mark also record. Um, Luke records also a, a separate occasion where Jesus is anointed again, but this time by a prostitute. Um, it's a different occasion, a lot of similarities, but uh, shouldn't be confused with this event. This event, we are literally in the last few days of Jesus' earthly life before he goes to the cross. And uh, it mentions that we're in a, the Passover. This is the third Passover that John mentions in his gospel. It's really helpful, these annual events, to keep track of Jesus' three-year ministry. Helps us get the time scale right. But things have hotted up an awful lot since Lazarus was raised from the dead. Jesus is even more of a wanted man. And now we're told Lazarus is too, you know. He died once, let's try and kill him again. But So things are coming to a head. But Jesus doesn't seem to bother him. He still decides, I'm going to return to Bethany. I'm going to spend time with my good friends. And there's this party that's put on, this celebration of thanksgiving for the life of Lazarus. What a celebration that must have been. Imagine that. Your dear brother. Been raised back to life. What a celebration. And right in the middle of this festivity, this celebration, Mary is compelled to show Jesus exactly what he means to her. To show Jesus how much he is really worth to her. Sometimes said that our word for worship comes from the old English worthship. Giving God his true worth. And while that might be a helpful description, it kind of begs the question, well, what is God really worth to you? What is God worth to you? And I hope, as we've been going through, certainly John's gospel, as John has been revealing who Jesus is, his mission, his passion, I hope your answer is, well, he's worth my everything. He's worth my all. You know, isn't Jesus worthy of our best? Isn't he worthy of our best? The one who came to give us his everything. His very life. Isn't he worth us giving our everything? You see, true worship is truly costly. It's truly costly. It calls for us to humble ourselves. Just got a real sense this morning as we were singing and and worshipping God, this sense to, to humble ourselves, to bow down and say, God, you are so holy, holy, holy. It's the Lord God Almighty. And yet he welcomes us into his presence. But there's a cost calls for us to humble ourselves. It it calls for us to lay aside all the things that we might want to grab hold of and say, no, I give you my everything. It's costly. As King David once said, probably one of the most famous worshippers of all time, a man after God's own heart, 
He once said this, I will not offer sacrifices to God that cost me nothing. Worship is not cheap. And really that's what I want to talk about this morning. Ties in a lot with where we've been so far in our worship. I love the way God does that by his spirit. But I want to talk about costly worship. And draw out just some keys really that we can learn from this mighty woman of God. Mary of Bethany. But before we get into that, who is Mary of Bethany? There seems to be hundreds of Marys in the Bible in the New Testament. It seems like everybody's called Mary. It can be a bit confusing, can't it? We've got Mary, the mother of Jesus. Mary Magdalene. Mary Cleopas is mentioned at the foot of the cross. Who are all these Marys? Are they all one? Are they different? Now we've got Mary of Bethany. Well, with Mary of Bethany, we know that she's mentioned three times, three occasions, in the New Testament, the first time she's mentioned is when, she, when Jesus is invited to their house. And Martha, her sister, complains that Mary isn't helping out with the meal. And, and Jesus commends Mary for choosing what is better. To spend time at his feet, listening to his every word. Spending time in his presence. The next time... We hear of Mary, as Rob preached last week, was when Lazarus, her brother, died. And Martha actually shows incredible faith as she talks with Jesus. And then eventually Mary leaves the group of mourners and and falls at Jesus' feet, sobbing, grieved. And now, just a few days before Jesus goes to the cross, here we see her extravagantly anointing Jesus. You know, one thing for me, I don't know about you, that immediately stands out when I look at these three brief commentaries on her is that she is always at the feet of Jesus. She's always at the feet of Jesus. Whether she's listening intently to his words, whether she's deeply disappointed and grieving Jesus, if only you were here a few days before, my brother would have lived. Yet where is she? At the feet of Jesus. And now, during a time of celebration and joy, where is she? At the feet of Jesus, anointing him. I just felt God really strongly say as I was preparing this, that is where costly worship begins. At the feet of Jesus, as we humble ourselves, whatever we may be feeling, whether we are just totally fixed on him, not allowing distractions to get in the way, or whether we're in a really hard place where we're struggling with disappointment and grief, or whether we're just full of joy and celebrating, True, costly worship starts at the feet of Jesus. Firstly, Mary was prepared to worship Jesus, whatever the financial cost. Judas was so quick to point out, wasn't he? This was seriously expensive perfume. This this nard would have been worth a, a year's wages. I don't know what your annual salary is. Imagine blowing that in one moment. One moment. 
This, this nard would have been imported from India, probably northern India. This was the stuff of royalty. This was the stuff of kings and queens. It was incredibly extravagant. The thing is, part of our worship to God is worshipping him with our finances. With our finances. That's why we, although a lot of us give by standing order, we still like to take up an offering as part of our worship gathering. Because I think it's a good model. It's good to remind us that we worship God with our everything, our time, our talents, and our finances. And we're called to be generous, extravagant, hilarious givers. And maybe we, we probably all have a different idea of what being generous is. But the bottom line is, the motivation, whatever we give, should be out of a love for God. A love for God and a desire to show that our trust, our faith, is not in our bank balance. But it's in the God who provides for our every need. It's a real statement of our worship. Jesus, I choose to trust you with my everything. And that includes what's in my pocket. Jesus famously said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I find it interesting. Paul describes the financial gift he receives from the church in Philippi as a a fragrant offering. Acceptable. Pleasing to God. In our financial sacrificial giving... It becomes a fragrant offering. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I think it was pretty clear to see where Mary's heart was at with her very literally fragrant offering. She was prepared to worship Jesus, whatever the financial cost. I think that's a huge one in our day and age. Secondly, Mary was prepared to worship God Whatever it cost her reputation, whatever it cost her reputation, these are challenging things, aren't they? You know, the thing is, I think Mary had already shown that actually she wasn't going to be dictated to by what was acceptable culturally, by, by the, the norms of the day. You know, when she sat at Jesus' feet, she was already breaking taboos. She was in the place of a disciple at the feet of her rabbi. That wasn't the place traditionally for women. Did Mary care? No. She was prepared to push through these cultural norms to be with her saviour. To push through. To push through. God's been saying that to us this morning. Push through. Don't worry about your reputation. She just wanted to get to know Jesus better. And I think she knew Jesus pretty well. I was reading some commentaries about this. And uh, one of them said that, I found this quite helpful. When she was sitting at the feet of Jesus the first time we're introduced to Mary, she recognized Jesus as the prophet. Not just a good teacher, but the prophet. Who speaks truth. Whose words bring life. The word become flesh as John introduces Jesus. She hung on to his every word because he was the prophet. When she fell at Lazarus's, sorry, at Jesus's feet, 
when her brother Lazarus had died, that's when she recognized Jesus as her high priest. One, as Hebrews 4 says, who is able to sympathize with us. We have a high priest who is able to sympathize with us. There's that shortest verse in the Bible, at least in our version, in the English version, just simply says, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. He is able to empathize, to sympathize, to feel what you are going through. He is our high priest. He is the one who represents us before the Father. She recognized him as the prophet, as the high priest. And now, as she anoints Jesus with this royal, costly perfume, she's recognizing Jesus as the king of kings. Anoints him regardless of cultural expectations. You know, and Matthew and Mark, I don't know exactly how she did it. Matthew and Mark say she poured this oil over Jesus' head and it ran down his beard. And, and uh, here John talks about her anointing his feet. She had a pound of the stuff. She probably had plenty to cover Jesus. Imagine the smell that radiated. We're told it filled the room. And she lets her hair down. To wipe his feet. Another cultural taboo. You know, because women of a certain age in that culture never let their hair down. It was a shameful thing to do from a certain age. They would always have it up. That's why Paul, in the church, uh, to the church in Corinth, he described a woman's hair as her glory, her crown. And it's almost as if Mary, you know, she's not bothered by her reputation. She doesn't care what people are going to say. It's almost like she's laying her glory, her crown at Jesus' feet. She undoes her hair and dries his feet. She wasn't bothered about her reputation. Let alone the fact that in that culture, only the lowliest slave would attend to a guest's feet. And here she is, host. Of course, it's nothing that Jesus didn't then model himself. As he washed his disciples' feet. True humility. She humbled herself. And worshipped Jesus. Whatever it cost her reputation. Again, King David. Wonderful model of a worshipper. Once said this. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this. I will be humiliated in my own eyes. That was David's heart. When, you know, the king shouldn't do that as he was being mocked by his own wife, Michael. He was like, I don't care. I don't care if I'm the king. I'm going to worship and give thanks to my God, whatever it costs my reputation. You know, David was open to criticism. So was, so was Mary. Third point, she was prepared to worship despite the criticism. You know, this was a public display. She didn't just say, Jesus, can I just do something in private? You know, this wasn't a private, hidden away affair. This was public. This was in front of people, crowds, in fact, that had gathered to see Lazarus and Jesus. You know, you often sometimes hear people say, well... I like to keep my faith private. It's just between me and God. And yet Mary's worship was unashamed. She was unafraid of of what people might say. Which left her open to criticism. And sure enough that came. 
Judas was on hand to deliver it. You could have sold that and fed hundreds of mouths for months. You know, it sounds so pious, doesn't it? it? Sounds so worthy, so good. It just makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah, the truth is, good works are not always worship. Good works are not always worship, as we've been singing about. Worship is all about the heart. I'm coming back to the heart of worship. It's all about the heart. And later, as John reveals, Judas's heart was far from worship. His heart was in the money bag. That's where his treasure lay. How much of this annual salary can I cream off the top? That's where his heart was. Yet on the surface, he looked like the righteous one, didn't he? Well, that's, yeah, that's good stewardship of, of, of finances. You know, it's good to care about the poor. Didn't Jesus himself say, whatever you do to the least of these, you do for me? Isn't that worship? Isn't that a better way to worship? This is just embarrassing. You know, Mary's gone over that she's so emotional. She's gone over the top again. You know, oh no, now she's let, letting her hair down. This, this really is embarrassing. This is shameful. I hope we don't have any visitors here. Oh dear, we do. We've got crowds of people. I wonder if you've ever been tempted to think like that. When you see someone just worshipping with abandonment. And something in you thinks, it's a bit embarrassing. Shouldn't be doing that here. You know, I think if I'd walked into that situation, I don't know, maybe I would have sided with, with Judas. The other, the other gospels certainly suggest that the other disciples joined in with the criticism. It was like, well, yeah, that, that makes sense. Judas has got a point here. That's the God-honoring thing to do. Yeah, as we said, worship is all about the heart. You see, good works only become worship when the motivation is out of love for God. It's, it's got to be about the heart. It's got to be about the motivation. And the beautiful thing is, as we read this, we see that Mary doesn't go on the defensive. When she's criticized, she doesn't suddenly get into an argument about appropriate ways to worship. She simply allows Jesus to affirm her. She's silent. Because only his opinion really mattered to her. It's a big lesson for us, isn't it? Costly worship is when we break free from the fear of man and what people might say. Oh, I can't do that. I can't do that. We need to push past that. We need to break free from the fear of what people may say or think. And I think as we do that, we will find a renewed freedom in our worship, both corporately and also as we worship throughout our week. Jesus replied, leave her alone. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Now, of course, Jesus wasn't saying forget about the poor. We know when we read through the whole of scripture, God's heart has always been for the poor. But Jesus was just affirming that Mary's act was simply the right thing to do at the right time. She followed the convictions in her heart. Her motivation was pure. And actually, 
It wasn't just costly, it was also prophetic, what she was doing. It was prophetic. And I don't know whether Mary fully knew all the implications of what she was doing. You get the feeling she probably knew a lot more about Jesus than most of the 12 disciples did. You know, while they were still arguing about which one of us is the greatest. You know, there was she at Jesus' feet, costly anointing him. I think she got a a greater understanding, really, of what Jesus' mission was. But I doubt whether she totally grasped the significance that she was anointing Jesus' body for burial. Just a few days before he went to the cross. Her worship was costly, but it was also prophetic. And in the same way, when we worship, I don't think we fully realize the impact our worship has. Again, we were reminded this morning to push through because as we do, freedom will come. Freedom will come. You know, as we choose to worship, despite the cost, despite what people might say, despite how we feel, because that's costly too, when we choose to worship God, even when we're feeling far away, there's a decision, there's a cost there. But when we do that, our worship has a prophetic edge. It's powerful. It becomes a battle cry. That's when strength comes. That's when freedom comes. It's when the powers of darkness are pushed back. There's something very, very powerful when the church decides they're going to worship God whatever the cost. It's powerful, deeply prophetic. You know, we're not just talking about our corporate worship, although it's very much part of it, but also how we worship God with our work. How we worship God with our devotion to our family and our friends and our neighbours. With our attitudes. How we worship God with our priorities. Are we actually putting him first? The thing is, as we do that, we too carry the fragrance of Christ wherever we go. We ourselves become the aroma of Christ. I just thought Lynn's testimony was so beautiful. You know, she took that worship, she was encouraged as we gathered and then went out during the week to encourage someone else. She became the fragrance of Christ. I mean, maybe the flowers were fragrant, but I tell you what, you are the fragrance of Christ. You're carrying that into our communities. If you think about it in a very real sense, everyone who was in that room or in any sense of close proximity of Jesus would have picked up that scent on them. People would have, oh, you smell nice. Where have you been? I've just been witnessing the worship of Jesus. Wow. You carry it with you. 2 Corinthians 2 puts it like this. Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ and through us, underlined through us, spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of God. For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To one, 
with the smell of death. To the other, the fragrance of life. You know, smells a funny thing, isn't it? You know, some smells, people go, oh, that's beautiful. Others go, that's repulsive. I was in a garden centre the other day and um, getting a bit a little bored. And uh, so I went round all the scented candles to sniff, as you do. And um, I found one that just took me straight back to my childhood. You know, scent is the closest related sense to memory and emotion. It's what makes perfume companies billions. Because it immediately tra- takes you back to that place. I was se- six Seven years old, rolling around, suddenly in the back garden of my home as I smelt that candle. I went straight, I was like, oh, this is wonderful, smell of freshly mown grass. And, and I handed it to Ben, I said, oh, smell this. And he went, oh, that smells like our compost heap. And it, it was a bit herbaceous, but to me, it just took me back to childhood. To Ben, it was the compost heap. You know, one, one attracts, one repulses, it's the same smell. And, and the thing is, as our relationship with Jesus becomes deeper and stronger as we are prepared to worship him in spirit and in truth, regardless of the cost, regardless of the criticism, regardless of our reputations, to truly humble ourselves, we will become a stronger and stronger scent that will draw, I believe, many, many people to us, ultimately to Jesus. But at the same time, we mustn't be surprised as well If for those who just don't want to know, we're a bit of a stench. So you know what? I just don't want to know. It's what we read about with Jesus. You know, he had a way of polarizing people. People didn't sit on the fence with Jesus. And I believe as a church, we're going to become more and more like that. A beautiful fragrance to many. This fragrance wafts out of this place as we go out into our working week, wherever that is. But we're also going to be a bit of a stench to people who just don't want to know. And that's okay. (laughs) Jesus was the same. But I really believe God is calling us to renewed depth of intimacy in our worship. A renewed acceptance that we have to humble ourselves. We have to give ourselves wholeheartedly to prayer, to intercession, to worship, corporately, individually. We've had so many prophetic words over the last, I mean, just maybe even the last 18 months. And actually, I received another one from um, Dave and Christine Cole's friend last Sunday, just tied in again, almost mirroring, almost words for words, the, 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 several other prophetic words we've had you know when God is saying the same thing through different people at different times you've got to got to take notice you've got to pay attention and last Sunday this friend of Dave and Christine's just brought this word it was it basically it uh, was based around the verse we started this year off with what I preached on at the very beginning of 2016 Isaiah 43 Verse 19 to 20, see, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the desert and rivers in the wasteland. That's the verse we started this year off with. Here it comes again. And it was just another affirmation that God is wanting to do a fresh move of his spirit amongst us as his church. 
We've been hearing this time and time again. It's going to be a time when his spirit moves with increasing power, with a greater anointing, with a, in a greater transforming way. I just wrote down a few, few highlights, if you like. A deeper heart connection with God. People will get a greater passion and compassion for, for the lost. There will come a renewed evangelistic thrust into our community in the power and anointing of the Spirit. But you know what? In all these prophetic words that have come, specifically over us as a church here in Sutton, this deeper move will be birthed. Through fresh intimacy in worship, in prayer, in intercession. Really, the challenge for us as a church is, do we want it? Do we want it? I'm really excited. But it calls for us to humble ourselves and say, God, we want this. We want this. Whatever the cost. Whatever the cost. That's my prayer, really, that as we worship God, whatever the cost, we will increasingly become a prophetic voice to our community. I believe that's what God has called us to be. Yes, it might polarize people, but I believe it's going to draw many, many others into the kingdom of God that will become the aroma of Christ. That won't just fill up this room. Believe it will. Lord, may your fragrance rest in this place. But also that we continue to carry this fragrance increasingly out of here. Into our places of work, into our schools, into our families. It will stick to us as we scatter. So if the band could come back, I think we just respond in worship. Basically, kick off where we left off with our sung worship. Let's follow this mighty woman of God's example of lavish, costly, humble worship. Amen? Amen.